That beautiful hymn, Psalm 145, captures a theme of what we're looking at this afternoon. God's glorious kingdom as a reason for us to bring him praise and worship from our hearts. We're looking together at the second commandment. And uh, I'm going to turn then to Lord's Day 35. Lord's Day 35. I see you have the Westminster Standards here too, and we read from them this afternoon, our congregation, so maybe I'll read from them after as well, and you can compare them together. For first, Lord's Day 35, on page 890 in your back of your Trinity uh, Psalter hymnal. Question answer 96, what is God's will? Sorry, before I read that, I will read uh, the, uh, the second commandment, uh, the page before. Uh, it says, uh, you shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing love to thousands to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then Lord say 35, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in God's word. That's a regular principle. May we then not make any image at all. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. But may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in the churches? No, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. Remember the wording of the previous version of the of the catechism, not by dumb images. doesn't mean stupid, but images, like it says here, that cannot talk. And then Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, question and answer 50 to 52. It's on page 971. At the bottom right there. 50 to 52. Sorry, 50 to 52. What is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. What are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? The reasons annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, his propriety in us, and the zeal he has to his own worship. Propriety in us is ownership of us. So we are his chosen, redeemed uh, possession. We'll turn God's word to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses uh, 18 to 29, the second half of that chapter. 
Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 18, and our text will be the last couple verses. As we read this, let's keep in mind that this is the holy and inspired word of God. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and to the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are being made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Last two verses of our text. Read those again. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What would happen if you were to host a seven-year-old's birthday party and all your son's friends come and then you say, I I didn't plan anything for you guys to do. You just have to decide what you do among yourselves. Maybe the way you could decide is just whoever is the strongest and best fighter among you gets to decide. Have a go. It wouldn't go very well. There are times when people have wondered, and perhaps there may be some truth in it, whether that's what goes on in church in terms of worship. That those who have the most power and influence, the most charm, decide what happens in worship. Should we have more scripture read? Should we add some more instruments? How about a choir? How about a Baroque orchestra? How about a band? More prayer? Why not a video presentation? How about some interpretive dance? Maybe should we have more prayer? Maybe we should spice it up with yoga. Maybe have a kid's corner. Worship wars you heard of those? They have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Worship wars or music wars, whatever it might be. The question at all such times can be entirely wrong. Entirely from a wrong motivation. 
the birthday party. It should have been organized by prearranged with the, with the parents, with the child, taking consideration what their child indeed would like to do. It's to honor him, to be his celebration. The worship service. Who is it for? Who is it for, boys and girls? Why do we come to worship? It is for the Lord. And thus, we must pay attention to what God has said, to that which we know that God has said, where indeed He talks about worship and what He would have us to do in worship. It doesn't mean that we necessarily find a proof text for everything we do in worship. You won't necessarily find a proof text that we should begin a worship service at 7 o'clock in the evening. You won't necessarily find a proof text that we should use a Trinity Psalter hymnal. Anything against your, your hymnal, of course. But what it does mean is that God, by this principle, by this commandment, has delivered us from this destructive and fleshly free-for-all. And find in his word and exemplified in Jesus Christ a solid basis from which to plan out the service. From which to, to think about that service and to discuss it together. On which to also then engage in God-pleasing and soul-satisfying worship. Because God is good. God is good, as we just sung numerous times. And if His nature is good, then that which He sets before us to do is truly good. That first commandment, you shall have no other gods before us, it directs us to the one object of our worship, the who, for our worship, faith, and service. Second commandment directs us to the how. The how. It focuses especially upon worship, how we worship Him. And it brings to, to mind, brings before the Israelites a contemporary issue. Contemporary worship for them. Images. Why not worship God? through images as the Canaanites did. The question is changed from our fleshly, how do I want to worship? And what might I get out of worship? Whether I find my soul lifted up, first of all, to how does God want us to worship? And what does God receive from our worship? So, let's look at Scripture and seek to understand what this God-ordained way is and that we might seek to do it in a way that's pleasing before Him. As you look at the text of the uh, uh, Scripture text, Hebrews chapter 12, we see that this is partly the concern of the Hebrews preacher. And let's jump in this. We see that this principle informs us of, of what we receive. The writer says here, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Now this, this book of Hebrews, this exhortation, I think of it as an epistle, a letter, or perhaps as a sermon, However, in, in a methodical way, argument by argument, the writer continually directs our faith to Christ as the one who is a priest of an order, of an everlasting life, and the one uh, through whom he's brought a sacrifice by which we are made acceptable before God. He replaces the whole Old Testament priestly system. He doesn't just replace it, he fulfills it. And through Him, we are made acceptable before God. Through Christ, we may come before God. So that the author says, 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 let us then come. And we come 
through faith. Let's come with faith, boldly with faith, he says. Faith looks to what God has placed before us, and it receives. And the writer or preacher of Hebrews here commends that in the previous chapter, the saints of the old covenant as a cloud of witnesses. And we are then exhorted to also run this race with endurance. And to look unto Christ who's run before us. And to consider Him, lest we become weary and discouraged in our souls. Even as we endure the chastening of the Lord. And he reminds us then of the reality that we have while we're in this race. The reality that we have received in Christ. Where we are right now. In God's redemptive history. While the world around us, while the kingdom of the world closes in, as it would appear, on the church of Jesus Christ. And is hostile to the faith and hostile to the truth. We need to be reminded that God's purposes are ripening. And that we are not on the first chapter of God's, redempt, uh, God's redemptive history, uh, the first chapter of His kingdom. At the time which He had set His law before Israel, it was given as it revealed Himself in, in holiness such that they could not come close to this mountain. There's no, you've come to Mount Zion. You come into the, the heavenly kingdom. You come to the heavenly mountain. The heavenly, eternal, spiritual kingdom is before us. And we experience this. We are brought into this as we worship. He says, we have received this. We are receiving this now. A sense in which he says that is not simply that this is something in the future that we were receiving, but this is now. We are brought up, as it were, into the presence of God's angels. We worship in the heavenlies, as Paul says in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2. Set your mind in the heavenlies, where Christ is, where he's ascended. Interestingly, Calvin, the answer to, to Luther, in terms of the, in terms of the sacrament and, and in terms of the presence of Christ in the sacrament, Calvin says, we don't bring Christ down to the elements. The Spirit brings us up to Christ. We are in worship. We worship Christ. We worship God in the heavenlies, our souls are brought up before the throne of God. The descriptors that are given here of this glorious reality that we have in Christ all point to the spiritual and universal nature of this kingdom of which we are, have a part, in which we are, 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 are made part of, which we worship. It's a city of the living God. You don't find that here on earth. It's the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly. The heavenly Jerusalem. Among the, the host of angels, the, the army of angels, the general assembly of regenerated, the firstborn, regenerated, registered in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. Isn't that amazing? As you come here, you don't just come to a building. You don't even need this building to worship God. It serves a practical purpose. But we are brought into the, the heavenly building, the new temple of Jesus Christ, into the glorious sanctuary, which is Jesus Christ, the meeting place of God and His people. Children, you don't see angels here. But you worship God among angels. And so the author here reminds us that we are receiving, we have, have now, we, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That cannot be shaken. Mount Sinai shook. Yet once more, I will shake not only the, the earth, but also heaven. And Mount Sinai shook, and, and, and Moses was shaking. The people were shaking. 
Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. It's a quotation from Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And the shaking is an allusion to, to a farmer sifting out the grain, separating the, the grains and perhaps the, the wheat from, uh, through a sieve, through a screen, and, 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 and separating the, the, the grains from the foreign particles, from the, the, the chunks of dirt, from the bits of straw, from the caterpillars and bugs. After that, it would be threshed. The shaking is an allusion to God. Shaking the world, shaking the nations, bringing such calamities upon it, supernatural calamities upon the nations, and by that, separating his people from unbelievers who will be burned. God is a consuming fire who will burn up those who are disobedient and unbelieving. The yet once more, the writer tells us, is pointing to this great event that is coming. And the kingdom of this world will be so shaken that the order of it, the structure of it, the constitution of it will fall. But you, he says, are receiving, you have a kingdom that will not be shaken. Despite we may see in the world around us, it might make us shake. Despite the fact that the, the, the entire world is going to shake, you are part of a kingdom. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are part of a kingdom that will not shake. There might be things in your life that are concerning. They make you think that this cannot continue. This is not sustainable. This relationship I have with my children, this house, home arrangement, my family arrangement, whatever it is, the relationships. But with your God, you have a foot in already this kingdom. And your destiny is secure. A kingdom that will not be shaken. This is what you receive. This is what you have. And this you know by God's promise, by His word to you. By His word. These words here. The author brings before us the very promise that God spoke in the Old Testament with authority such such that we can anchor our hopes and our faith on that and not shake. Now, do we see And this, in terms of what God brings to us, in terms of this heavenly kingdom, do we see something of the nature of our worship? What is it that brings before us the news, the actuality that we have this kingdom? It's God's word. God's word. And especially his preached word. It comes through the promises of the gospel. It's not through worldly means. In other words, what we receive of God's salvation and of his kingdom. And also of his will for our lives. It doesn't come through the things of this world. And the the things of this world, which are physical, which are like in a sense the Mount Sinai are not proper conduits for the revealed truth of God to you. And so we don't turn to those things. See, so many churches are finding that it's more engaging and more scintillating to have on a video presentation some incredible graphic editing that will capture people's mind. That has some incredible music. It'll capture our emotions. The question is, can the ways of the world improve upon God's word? The means that God has given to us. Is a spiritual kingdom a physical kingdom? Is it deliverance from political enemies? No. 
It's the spiritual kingdom of God, at least as we see it now. God has chosen the preaching of his word to be the conduit, to be the channel through which you receive the glorious news and the reality. The means of the ear and not the eye so that you might hear his word and see with your spiritual eye, with the eye of your soul, the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom and his salvation and his law. Does it delight and enthrall you? Though you might find the ways of the world more entertaining, does it delight and enthrall you what God brings to you through His Word? Does that rejoice the soul? God is giving to you a kingdom. This principle informs us of what we receive. But secondly, informs us of how we receive it. The author says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Let us have grace. Let us, we know, you read through the book of Hebrews, that's the signature language of the writer of Hebrews. He loves that, the exhortation, that, that hortatory. Let us, it's like he, he puts us, after, after he teaches us, and, and he brings before us Christ, and, and he shows to us the glories that we have in the new covenant, and the new realities that we have in Jesus Christ. Then he says, well, let us go. Let us go. And here, Seeing the kingdom because we are receiving, because we have such a kingdom, and in order, words are coming up, in order that we might serve God, well, let us have grace. The grace which we are called to receive and seek is that which is a means of receiving salvation offered to us by God's Word. You know that grace is God's unmerited favor, which you cannot work for, which you cannot just uh, build up for yourself by your own good actions and your own good words, by your good behavior. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Grace is offered in the gospel. And by the response of faith, you receive that grace offered. Your sins forgiven. God reconciled with you and you are assured of His love. John Owen says this grace that's here, we shouldn't just restrict it to that grace by which we received Christ, in which we received the gospel, which we first received the Spirit. But it's God's continuing grace also in the believer's life by which the Holy Spirit assists us and enables us to serve Him. You see, that's true by the Apostle's next words. By which you may serve God. By which you may serve God. You may continue to serve God in, in, in the life of the Christian. Now, what another meaning that we might... We might think of, we might construe here those words, let us have grace. We might think of that as being, well, let us have grace, let us show grace in our dealings with others. And it's true. We should show grace in our dealings with others. But there's reason to not take that as a meaning here. But rather the, that this is the grace of God. Receiving this grace from God. Because he says after this, by which you may serve God. And those words by which do not mean through which. But, but by which. Uh, uh, on the basis of this. That we may serve God. And so he's saying, let us have grace. In other words... It can also be interpreted as, as let us take this grace that's been offered to us by the Lord. This grace that the authors uh, just pointed, uh, brought before us. This kingdom that's before us. Let us receive God's grace, His enabling grace. How does that grace come to us? And how do we receive it? 
Scripture emphasizes that it is through the preached word that God presents us with His grace. It is the word preached to us that the Holy Spirit uses to create faith within us. It's it's by means of this word which Paul says in Romans chapter 10, Christ is, is near to us. He's so near to us, nearer than, than he was in the Old Testament, the time of, 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 of Moses. That, that he says, if you believe on him in your hearts and you profess him with our mouths, we are saved. And that's a word, he means the word incarnate, the word in the, uh, through which comes, uh, by, by which he comes to us by the Spirit. The word is so close to us. And that word must be preached, he goes on to say. Apostle Peter says that we are begotten. We are born again by that word. And he says, the seed of regeneration. And he says, this is a word which was preached to you. The word which we are to crave as baby's milk. Word by which we grow. It is the word and also the aid of the sacraments and prayer by which we are built up in God's grace and we grow. Preached word. Because of this, we call the primary means of grace. Means of grace being God's, uh, the, the means that He gives for which His grace is presented to us. His grace comes to us. It's brought before us. The channel in which God brings His grace before us is primarily the preached Word. If somebody were watching one of your worship services and standing outside the door or watching outside one of these windows here and just watching what's going on in an abstracted sort of way, not hearing what's going on, but watching. They might say, well, most of the time, the minister talks and the people listen. Even put some to sleep, perhaps. But Scripture makes clear this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord to God's people, including the pastor himself. And that's why, boys and girls, God's word is central. It's the highest point in the worship service. It is as, as, I believe it's Mary, got Mary and Martha mixed up, but as Mary at the feet of Jesus, listening to his words, it's the highest act of worship for you to sit and for me to hear God's word to us, to hear it read to us, but then also preached to us, proclaimed to you, and for, for it to be administered to your life. So that it, it, it works in the mind as, as Christ, as the knowledge of Christ, as a, as, a, as a truth as it is in the Lord Jesus Christ is set before you. That you see what God is saying. When it, it presents a picture in your mind. The truth that's in Christ Jesus. And as it works in your heart then and brings forth holy affections. As it creates desires within you to, to know this God more. To believe in Him. To cast your heart and your mind upon Him. To cast your whole being on Him. To take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be known in Him. And to walk in Him. That, that you, you are in worship of God. And isn't that good? for your soul. Isn't that unto your life? That is God's design in His worship. And that's why the Apostle says, let us have grace. Let us have grace.
season it. A good example for us when we see older, more mature believers. It can be so much easier for perhaps young people to come and worship here. And what kind of sacrifices? I'm not saying there's none. But if you're disabled, if you got arthritis in all of your joints, if you're weak and encumbered with all sorts of heart problems, and you can barely get your socks on, and such believers are here among God's people, it's their priority because they recognize. As Peter said, as the apostle said, the disciple said to Jesus Christ, you have the words of eternal life. Why? Where else shall we go? And they will be here to hear God's word. Or as a mother who has young children and so much work and they've got to plan ahead, plan out the meals, plan out what kind of clothes they're going to wear, get the kids in the bathtub, Get them, we'll try to get them all together on Sunday morning to be here. We might ask ourselves a question why is it that we I can't say that I can't be here? Or don't want to be here? Don't we need to be here? We need grace. Let us have grace. This is the cry of the apostle, seeing the crumbling kingdom of the world, seeing his own self perhaps crumbling, seeing how easily he, he wanders and turns to the things of the world, the emptiness of self. He's come to an end of self and he sees and he hears what's happened at Mount Sinai and and but This kingdom of glory is before us. The reality of all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let nothing stop us. Let us have grace. The service is to be set up so that nothing would hold God back from addressing His people. Nothing will hold you back from hearing His voice to you. Let us have this grace from God. Let us see Jesus Christ. Let us have Christ. So the regular principle instructs us, congregation, of the necessity, our need of God's word to present us with Christ, with his kingdom and with his will, and of the grace we need to hear and to receive by the preaching and by the hearing of God's word. Thirdly, the principle informs us of how we respond. Of how we respond. Let me just refresh your memories on what he's saying here. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Apostles' last words here, for our God is a consuming fire, remind us of what? Of God's unchanging nature. Other things too. Maybe you're right if you didn't have that. But we see that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He repeats this description of God that we find in Exodus, once in Exodus, twice in Deuteronomy, and, 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 and in multiple allusions to the same thing, that God is a consuming fire. And he, he grounds his argument of how we approach God in worship. How we approach God in worship is tied to who God is. Let me read that again. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For, because, our God is a consuming fire. God's bright and fiery appearance on Mount Sinai was reason for Moses to shake himself as he was there. 
And reason from Moses and the people said, don't let God talk to us again. You go for us. You go between us. You be our mediator. And Moses said, God has done so in order that you might not sin. God was showing his righteousness, his holiness, and his justice. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, that same phrase is, is that God is a consuming fire. is set next to his jealousy that he will destroy his people if they should turn to idols. Israel, don't just worship whoever you will. Worship the one true God, Israel. Don't worship how you want. Worship and approach God in the way that he's commanded. Remember Nadab and Abihu, right? They thought, remember this boys and girls? They thought that they could just, they themselves could go to God apart from God's commandments And they could worship God in their way. They brought their scepter, or they brought their their incense before him. And God consumed them with fire. Our God is a consuming fire. You see how important the regulative principle of worship is. It's like that fence around Mount Sinai. Worship God in the way He's commanded, or else, or else. And so the principle that we ought to govern our worship is, 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 is not to be based on what we desire, but let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. God says in His law, therefore, in the second commandment which we read, don't make carved images. Don't worship me through visual means. Do not worship the way of the nations. Leviticus chapter 18, the nations serve their gods in all sorts of abominable ways, God says there. They even offer their children as sacrifices, and God says, don't do what they do. He says, you shall not add to my word nor take away from it. In other words, I have revealed the way that you shall worship me, and you shall serve me then the way that I have worshipped you. You see, God regulates his worship for our good. For our good. A regulation is so important that we seek to get it right. And we don't worship God uh, just because something might pragmatically or practically seem so much better. Or that it might move us. We might think somebody might be moved by something a whole lot more than something else. That's not the, that's not the, the basis and the criteria for what is acceptable before God and worship. He reveals in His Word clearly the, the elements of worship of singing and of prayer and of offerings, of tithes and, and of His Word being preached. And these in, in, in a dialogical manner. It's regulated. It's regulated. That regulation is so important. Let me give you an example. In the mid-18th century, clockmakers designed, they invented a new kind of clock, a new kind of watch or clock mechanism. It was called the regulator, regulator clock. And it was more, it was, uh, more accurate than the, 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 the spring, the recoil clock. The spring, as it unwinds, it, the, 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 the force it puts on, the, the gears, it varies. But this was a pendulum-driven rock. Uh, uh, clock, sorry. And this regulator, regulator clock featured what was called a deadbeat escapement, which is able to keep time to within one second per week deviance. But very precise, ten times better than the recoil spring mechanism. And what that deadbeat, deadbeat, escape, deadbeat escapement was, was that there was this gear wheel with slanted teeth, and it provided the second-by-second second drive for that clock. As it would move, the watch mechanism, the clock mechanism, 
would move. It, it, it would drive that whole, the whole clock. And so the hands would, go, uh, would move exactly according to that gear wheel. And that gear wheel was not driven at its axle, but rather at its teeth, at its curved teeth. Above that gear wheel was this curved arm above the gear above that gear wheel that would pivot back and forth and it was attached to the pendulum so it would rock back and forth and as it would rock one way the the the, the hand that that arm that uh, the the extremity on that one side of that that arm would knock a tooth on that gear wheel forward but lest it should go too far The momentum of the pendulum would swing it back, and the other side would catch the next, uh, would catch the gear. And so it would move one tooth forward every time. So far, but no further. So far, but no further. Tick, tock, tick, tock. Exact intervals because of that regulating arm and that swinging pendulum. You know that those movements needed to be so precise in order that those hands would move and tell time exactly. Even a week later or a month later, according to the second. That would be the test. That would be pleasing and acceptable to the watchmaker and to the watch user. Our worship is to be brought before God acceptably before Him. It must be pleasing unto God who is this consuming fire who is holy and righteous and just. It must be in sync with His Word not according to our tradition simply to the whims of people before not according to people in the world today and to the worldly within us but according to His Word regulated by that acceptably That word has a ring. It's not the exact word, but it's so close to the word that's used in Leviticus with regard to the Old Testament sacrifices that were to be offered before God. And God gave all the the specifications who was to bring that sacrifice, at what time that sacrifice was to be brought, how it was to be brought, what, what they were to do with the entrails, what they were to do with the blood. It was all important before God. It all had purpose and meaning so that if they did it so, it would be acceptable. It would be a sweet-smelling aroma before God. If they did not, like Isaiah speaks of in the first couple chapters, and they did it with, with hearts that were distant from the Lord, and they did it with all blood on their hands, it was a stench in God's nostrils. Our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the exact will of God, in fulfillment of all of those specifications in the Word, He leads us an example. He fulfilled this regulative principle perfectly by offering Himself as a sacrifice to God precisely according to every detail of the law. And we follow Him. He's your great worship leader. He's the one fulfillment of of the psalmist in Psalm 22. I will declare your praise to my brethren. He's our worship leader. And we follow him then. And we come through his blood. And we're led by him. And offering ourselves in, in worship to him in a way that is pleasing to him. And that, brothers and sisters... It frees you from the whims of the flesh, from the whims of other people's flesh, from that free-for-all. Thank God. It's not according to what we want, what you want, because then our souls would never find its rest in God. Would not the worldly within us and the worldly outside of us steal us away from the sanctified elements of spiritual worship. 
that God has protected us from that by this. Don't you find it relieving then that God has set up for you in the regular principle of worship in the second commandment a fence around the worship so that you can trust yourself being led to the green pastures of God's word, that you can come to the Lord Jesus Christ and he to you so that, yes, let us have grace from God, led also then in response to him that is pleasing before him. I know it's getting late. Let me, let me finish, or just about finish, with just this quotation from Gresham Mason, Christianity and Liberalism, where he talks, he brings before us this beautiful reality that we have in the worship service. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and I say, and to forget all the worldly entertainments, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross. If there be such a place, then that is the house of God that is at the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive a weary world. Praise God for this commandment that comes from His wisdom and from His grace, for His regulation of worship so that we are not floundering, but have these principles in His Word to guide us as we discuss worship with one another, as we are also then engaged in worship, following Christ, our glorious example.